We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. My brothers and sisters, believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and have become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do commit adult, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word and that you have not kept us guessing who you are or what you are like, but you have made yourself known as we've just sung that you are good. We pray that you would give us faith now to believe that so that our hearts might be soft to everything good that you would have to say to us today out of this passage. Thank you that you see all of us better than we see ourselves. You know how broken we are. You know how desperate we are. You know how full of doubt we are. You see everything about us, and yet your response is never to move away from us in frustration or disgust or disdain, but it is always to move towards us in love and kindness. Would you help us to believe that this morning? Help us to believe that whether we have believed it for years or whether we've never believed it. Meet us 
this morning and speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take your seats. Let me welcome you once again. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, have you ever asked the question, if Christianity is true, why aren't Christians better people? You know, how is it that there are people who don't believe in Jesus? Your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, people in this city who seem to be more moral, more kind, more generous, more patient, more humble, more, more socially conscious than many Christians. If you have ever asked that question, you are not alone. The, the Bible itself asked that question, and that's actually the primary question that the book of James is dealing with. James, as we have been looking at, says that there is a difference between faith that is alive and faith that is dead. Dead faith is all up here. It's just beliefs in your head. There's no real change in your life. But living faith is a faith that begins to work itself out in every area of your life. See, we are, this is so important to understand. Some of you, you, we really struggle with the book of James. There's a lot of hard, challenging stuff, and we're going to see it this morning. But you need to hear this. We are, we are saved by faith alone. There is nothing you can do to merit God's love and favor. We are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. It always leads to a changed life. Look at verse 14 and 17. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, those two verses really are the central, they are the central verses of the whole book of James. If you want to understand the book of James, it really all comes down to those two verses because we've been looking at these last couple weeks, all of the different actions in the different areas where James says living faith, real faith, if you really know God, the God of the Bible, all of these areas where living faith begins to work itself out in your life, like how you handle suffering and how you relate to God's word. And next week we're going to look at how it, how it impacts the way that we speak, our tongue, the words that we use. And how it, a couple weeks we're going to look at, it shapes how we pray. And how we relate to our money or our lack of it. You get this whole list of things. James is so practical and it is so challenging. But today, here, here's the deal. We see the specific context that, that James links these two very important verses to. James is telling us the action in the area that is most characteristic of someone who has living faith, someone who knows Jesus. In other words, if you do not see the gospel changing you as it relates to this particular part of your life that we're talking about this morning, then it begs the question, do you have living faith or do you have dead faith? Do you know, do you know God or do you just know a lot about God? Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? We need to pay attention. We need to pay attention 
to what James is saying. And we're going to look at two things this morning to try to kind of wrap our minds around what this passage is teaching us. We're going to look at the life we are called to live, and then we're going to look at the God we are called to love. Some of you are like, two? I thought it was always three. See, I'm keeping you on your toes. I'm keeping you on your toes. The life we're called to live, the God we're called to love. All right, first, the life that we're called to live. Now, James, James does not, I'm from the South. We do small talk really well. You know, we kind of stay on the surface for a long time. Uh, but James doesn't do that. He gets right to it. Look at verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. That means that as Christians, we are not to privilege or to think of some people as more important than others. And then I want you to see this. James gives an example of favoritism. He says, imagine this morning that into our church walked someone who is, who is in tattered clothes, not dressed very nicely, a poor person. And then imagine someone else walks in and they are, they are, they are looking really good and they've got a lot of money. And you know what James says? He says, do not show special attention to the rich person. Now, of course, the only reason, friends, the, the only reason James says this is because it happens, actually. All of us, I mean, we are constantly measuring people up. Constantly. And it's not just with money, by the way. We do it, we do it with race. We do it with, with ethnicity. We do it with, with marital status. We do it with people who live in the same neighborhood as us. I mean, how often do you walk into this room on Sunday morning and you're like, who here is like me? I think I'll go sit there. Or I'll go talk to them. Now, remember, James, he is making a very big deal about favoritism. He says, this is the way you know if you have living faith. He's being very strong here. In fact, in verse 4, he calls favoritism evil. And you might hear that and you think, you know, okay, I know this is important. But how could James seem to be saying that this is the most Important. I mean, most of us would probably not put favoritism in our top three of thou shalt not. You know, if you were to create a thou shalt not list, would favoritism make it into your top three? It makes it into James's top one. This is the thing James is saying. It's going to tell you whether you have living faith or dead faith. Why is James saying that? And the answer is in James's, is that James's command to not favor one person over another is actually one application of a much larger principle. Let me say that again. It's one application of a much larger principle. Let me show you what I mean. Look look again at verse 1. James says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now that's an interesting connection. James is saying, okay, Christian, because you understand the glory of Jesus. Do not value one person over another. Which means if you do value one person over another, there's something that you don't understand about the glory of God. Now why is that? We're actually going to get to this next week, but in James chapter 3, verse 9, James says this. He says, with the tongue, that means with our words, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Now, what is God like? 
Well, James just told us, he's glorious. God is glorious. And so if we are made in his image, what does that mean? We are made with glory. You know, the Bible gets to this actually on page one. Genesis chapter two. It says that every single person, rich or poor, moral or immoral, gay or straight, Christian or not, is made in God's image and is infused with God's glory. And you see, now we're actually finally getting to the bigger principle. Favoritism is such a big deal because we are called to give everyone the honor and the dignity and the value and the glory that is due to them by the sheer fact that they are a human being. Now, the Bible's word for this is justice. See, the, the, James is saying the life that we are called to live, the life that James is getting at in this passage, is a life of justice. And you say, wait a minute. I don't, justice, like that doesn't show up anywhere in this passage. I don't see that word. It is not here, but it is all over the Bible. You know, the Bible's, one of the main words the Bible uses for justice is the word mishpat. It shows up over 200 times in the Old Testament. And you know what it means? It means to give people what is due to them. That's what glory means. It means to give them what, uh, that's what justice means. It means to give them what they deserve. Now, that can happen actually in two ways. There's a negative sense of justice. You know, justice in the negative sense is, is the punishment of wrongdoing. When someone does wrong, you give them what they are due. Now, what, here's what's really interesting about this. Leviticus, we're going to do a lot of Old Testament stuff this morning. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22, warns Israel to have the same mishpat, the same justice for the outsider as they do for themselves. In other words, punishments are to be equal. Now, why would the Bible say that? It says that because people don't always get the same penalty for the same crime. That's called unjust. I mean, we can just look at our own justice system. And what do we see? We see that people who are less well-off are actually more, more, more likely to be convicted and to receive greater penalties for the same crimes as those with greater resources commit. Now, that's justice in the negative sense. And most of us only think of justice in the negative sense, which is why we have an anemic view of justice. We actually we do not understand what the Bible means when it talks about justice because there's a positive sense as well. And I'll give you an example. So it's an example from the book of Deuteronomy, every, you know, everybody's favorite book in this room. Actually, somebody told me this week, they said, I'm reading Deuteronomy, and they said, I'm loving it. And I said, God is at work in your life. That is how you know God is at work in your life, when you love the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll tell you, the book of Deuteronomy is actually pretty amazing. Some of you think that's like the weird part of the Bible that we're kind of done with and it has no relevance to our life or our society today. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. It says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of mishpat, justice. Do not take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. When you are harvesting in your field 
and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. You say, okay, what does all that mean? Well, the text literally reads, do not turn aside the justice of the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And then what does it do? It begins to list rules pertaining to those individuals' rights. For example, it says a widow who is one of the most vulnerable people in the ancient Near East. It says that a widow has a right to not be robbed. And she has a right to get a fair loan. And then it has this whole bit about, you know, the gleaning of provisions where people who are in need can actually come to your field and eat your leftovers, and it's actually not a handout, but what, what Deuteronomy is saying is, no, that is actually justice, because people deserve to be able to eat. You see, justice is not just giving people the punishment that they deserve. That's the negative sense. It is giving people the protection, the care, and the rights that they deserve. So, when someone is oppressed or vulnerable, or weak, or hungry, you give them, this is what the Bible is saying, you give them what is due to them as a human being made in God's image, which is food, or shelter, or advocacy, or access to health care, or to education, or to opportunity. And the Bible says that Failure to do this, friends, is not just a lack of charity on our part, but it is a lack of justice. There was an article that came out about two years ago in the New York Times on homelessness in Oakland. I don't know if any of you saw this. It was an article on homelessness in, in Oakland, and the, the author uh, embedded himself in, uh, one, in the tent encampment off, off 880 down by Home Depot. Do you know the one I'm talking about? This is someone who had spent time in the slums of Mexico City. He said, what's happening in Oakland, in our city, he said, it is worse than what is happening in places like Mexico City. In fact, did you know that the United Nations has said, has compared tent encampments, the encampments in our city to the slums of Brazil and to Mexico and to Pakistan. I mean, what is happening here should break our hearts. And I know it can be overwhelming, but it should grieve us. It should not leave us unaffected. And in this article, he, he interviewed this one particular single mother. She'd lived there for five years in a little wooden shack with her daughter who was eight years old. Her daughter had been homeless since she was three years old. All, I mean, you know what that means? All she knew was a life of homelessness. That's all she knew. And the quote, there was a quote from this woman, from this mother, and she said this. She said, homeless people are treated worse than stray animals. When someone finds a stray animal, they take it home and feed it. When someone sees a homeless person, they call the police. And then she said this, where's the compassion? You know, you know what I think James would say? 
Where's the justice? See, people actually deserve more than that. All right, now do you see why James is coming down so strong on favoritism? We are called to live a life of justice by treating all people as God's glorious image bearers. And we are called to esteem the poor, not devalue them. And we are called to serve and to give ourselves to the poor and not ignore them. I mean, James is being so strong here. He couldn't be more strong. Look at verse, not, verse 13. He says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Here's what James is saying. Now, we, we, talk about, we talk about the gospel and the love of God here all the time, but James is saying God will judge us if we just talk about mercy and justice, but we don't actually do it. He will judge us as a church if we do not actually put our money where our mouth is and our bodies where our mouth is and actually care for the poor. And if that feels challenging to you, then you know what it means? It means that you are paying attention. It means that you're hearing what James is saying. Because James is saying, if you know God, if you have a living faith, then you will have a life poured out for the poor. And it may come slowly, friends, but it will come. And you may have a long way to go, but you will strive to get there. And if it is not coming, and if you are not striving, then you may not have the relationship with God that you think you have. And let me just say this one final point before we move on. We are called to live this way not just because we have something to offer the poor, but because we have something to receive from the poor. See, typically when people serve the poor, they think they are doing the poor a favor. Look at what James says in verse 5. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. For those of you in this room this morning, for those of you who are poor, you have so much to offer to those who are rich. And for those of you who are rich, you have so much to receive from the poor. See, James is saying, if you want to learn how to be rich in faith, which is way better than being rich in money or possessions, then you will find yourself working very hard to get around poor people. Because you don't just have something to give them, but you have something to receive from them. The life we're called to live, it's a life of justice. Now, Let's talk about the God that we're called to love. What struck me this week, James, the book of James, five chapters, really short. I mean, it's one of the shorter books of the Bible. James has only five chapters, and he devotes, we, we, we basically read almost all of chapter two this morning. It's a lot, I know. But James gives almost an entire chapter to this, to, to justice and to caring for the poor. That's, now... I'm from South Carolina. I've been, you know, we're not the smartest people on the education list, but that's 20%. That is 20% of his book that he devotes to this. That is a lot. 
The reason that James talks about justice so much is because the Bible talks about it so much. Probably the most famous verse on justice, some of you might have it memorized, in, in the whole Bible is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, O oh person, O oh brother, O oh sister, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. See, what does God require of you if you're a Christian? To read your Bible? To go to church? To pray? To do Christian things? Here's what, here's what Micah says. To do justice. And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with God means to know him intimately and to love what he loves. And the one thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear is that God loves justice. He loves it. He loves to care for the poor and for the oppressed. I mean, it is striking how often God actually describes himself this way. Listen to Psalm 146, verse 7. The Lord executes justice, mishpat, for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who, love, who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Now that is God's self-description. And it just shows up over and over and over again that this is what God loves to do. This is who he is. I mean, think about this. How do you describe yourself when you first meet someone? You know, you typically describe yourself by telling them the main things about you. Your name. Uh, your job. I don't, I don't do that because that is a conversation killer. As soon as you tell people you're a pastor, they start apologizing for all the four-letter words they've been using. I keep it a secret as long as I can. What do you do? You tell them your name. You tell them your job. You tell them where you're from or where you live. Or if you're a, a, a husband or a wife, if you're a mom or a dad. We describe ourselves by the main things that characterize us in life. And when God describes himself, as a father to the fatherless and a defender of the poor, he is saying that this is one of the main things he does in the world. Now, of course, God is doing all sorts of things in the world. But you see, this, it is so central to who God is that it is what he leads with. It's God's way of saying, this is, how, this is what I want to be known for. When people think of Yahweh, this is what I want them to think of. You know, as a church, when people think of Resurrection Oakland, you know what we want them to think of? You know what we want to be known for? It's not, it's not our music, it's not our sermons, it's not our programs. It's not our building as, as awesome and beautiful as it is. No, we want to be known for the way that we care for the poor. That's what Jesus was famous for. It's what we want to be famous for in our city. 
Because if this is what God is like, then it's what we should be like. And that's why James devotes almost an entire chapter out of five to this. Do you know that when people see us sharing our faith, they often only think that we're just trying to expand our tribe. But when they see us doing justice and they see us caring for the poor, then they actually get a glimpse of the glory of God. And that's the goal, friends. That's, that, is, that is why we exist. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you would not call yourself a Christian. But you are, you know, you're all in. You are all in on justice and caring for the poor and, 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 and advocating for people's just basic human rights. And so you hear this and you think, you know, I don't need to be a Christian to believe this. And you're right, you don't. But do you know that you wouldn't believe it without Christianity? See, where did this whole idea come from that people have basic human rights? Where did that come from? I mean, it might sound like common sense because any, any good, healthy person in this city would say, yes, those, those things are important. But where did it come from? I will tell you this, it did not come from a view of the world that says people are an accident. That we're just random happenstance of the creation. There's uh, one Russian philosopher who is a good friend of Dostoevsky, and he's, he, he just summarized secular humanism like this. He said, man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. See, but you laugh because it doesn't work. It falls apart. If people are not stamped with God's glory, if people are accidents and not creations, infused with dignity and worth and the glory of God himself, then it all falls apart. Where does this whole idea of basic human universal rights come from? You know where it comes from? It comes from Christianity. And by the way, that's not just me saying that. That is all sorts of secular historians and scholars. In fact, even Richard Dawkins, the, a very well-known atheist, if, you, if you've read him at all, says that this comes from Christianity. It came from Christianity because of its claim that every single person is made in God's image. And this is why when you turn back the pages of history, all the way to the first century when Christianity started in the Roman Empire, where, where the weak and the sick and the marginalized were totally discarded by society. No one cared for them. No one saw them as deserving of any rights. No one but Christians. Christians cared for the sick, and they started the first hospitals. Christians cared for the fatherless, and they started the first orphanages. And Christians cared for the poor. It's what they were famous for. In fact, there was one Roman emperor, a guy named Julian, 
who hated Christianity. He hated Christians. He tried to stomp out this movement of Jesus' followers. And this is what he once wrote in a letter. He said, the Jews feed the Jewish poor, the Romans feed the Roman poor, but Christians feed everybody's poor. And I just wonder if people in our city would say that about Christians right now. And if not, we should not be mad about that. We should start repenting, actually. What, what is it? You know, it's, I always hesitate to kind of talk about these early Christians. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that is just so idealistic and you know, can we ever really be like that? And can the church ever really be like that? What, what is it that got them to live like this? And what is it that's going to get us to live like this? I mean, we, we've talked about, listen, we've talked about the what this morning. The what is we are called to live a life of justice. And we've talked about the why this morning, that we're called to live a life of justice because God loves justice. But what about the how? That's probably the most important question. How do you become this kind of person? And how do you live this kind of life? And you see, it's not enough for me or anyone else actually to tell you just to do it. Me just telling you to do it probably makes you feel guilty that you haven't. Anybody feeling guilty this morning? I was feeling pretty guilty as I wrote this sermon. You know, listen, guilt will never change you. It will never change you. What will change you? There's a story of a very successful businessman who once encountered Mother Teresa. And she asked him this question. She said, what's your job? And he said, well, I work in finance. And she said, no, what's your job? And he said, well, I'm an executive. And she said, no, what's your job? And he looked at her and he said, I I don't understand what what you mean. And she looked at him and she said, your job as a Christian is to be loved by God. Now, Mother Teresa spent her life caring for the poor. And you would kind of think at that moment she would say, your job is to love the poor. Why didn't she say that? Because she knew that the only thing that will really change you, the only thing that will really get you to love the poor is love. And hear this, friends, it's not your love for God. That is not what she says. She she did not say, your job is to love God. No, what she said was, your job is to be loved by God. Love is the only thing that will really get you to live a life of radical, costly, sacrificial justice. Guilt will never change you, but grace will. The grace and the love of God that is offered to you in the gospel and actually at this table that we're about to come to. Do you know what the gospel says? Do you know what this table says? It's, it's actually all about justice. It, it is, this table, the Christian gospel, it is all about people getting what they deserve. It's all about people getting what they are due. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought, I thought you know, Christianity was all about 
sin and, and how, how short we have fallen to love God and to love our neighbor and to care for the poor. And that the only thing we deserve is God's judgment. Well, that's actually half the gospel. Do you know the other half? The other half says that Jesus came and he lived the life we should have lived. He's the only one who lived a life of perfect justice, who truly knows what it means to care for the poor, to identify with the oppressed. And he didn't just live the life that we should have lived, but the gospel says that he died the death we should have died. See, on the cross, here it is. Jesus took the judgment of God that we deserved so that we could have the love of God which he deserved. He took what was due to us so that we could have what was due to him, which is the everlasting, unconditional, unwavering love of God for you. The smile of God the kindness of God, the mercy of God that never runs out. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? If not, you can experience it today and it can change your life. And it will change your life. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this meal and for your son who left the riches of heaven and to come in poverty, physical poverty, material poverty, to be born in a manger, to have no place to lay his head, and then to take on spiritual poverty. Life without you so that we could have life with you forever. Father, would you help us to see the good news that is offered to us in this table, the love that you extend to us, and help us to drink of it deeply so that we would become people of love and justice with our neighbors, with our communities, and in our city. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.